Welcome, everyone, to the Jake Dunlap Show. This is your weekly dose of real success stories from entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, CEOs, and the people that you love. If you've ever wondered what makes people tick, what are the weird things that happened to them in their past that helped to shape the people that they've became? Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Eastern, you can tune in and get exactly that. The behind behind the scenes, not the typical behind the scenes, but the real stories that shaped some of the people that you know, love, and follow. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Jake Dunlap Show. Today's guest is going to be a fun one. You're probably going to, if you're watching the video, you're going to see me like writing down notes. This is a topic. Actually, one of our core values at Scaled is collaboration. And that is how much value I put into this topic. Today's guest really hones in on, look, difficult workplace relationships are a major problem that can make or break the success of a company, a relationship. It can derail your career. Trust me, I may or may not have been fired in the past for you know, not getting along at times and spill into your personal life, right? But, you know, by making human relations the focus of your management approach, you can effectively prevent any of that from happening and create a workplace culture in which everyone, including yourself, making notes, can thrive. And today's guest, I mean, is not just a talking voice on this, that she's also a practitioner, full professor of social psychology turned CEO. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Deb Mashik. Deb, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to be here, Jake. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about collaboration, my favorite topic. Like I said, I told her this in the pre the pre-show warm-up that I'm excited about this topic. And and so let's talk a little bit about you. We were we were talking so we're both raised in the Midwest. So, you know, not born in South Dakota, but raised in, in Nebraska. What was it, again, whether it was parents or influences, that kind of drew you to social psychology and this path? Are there things that you look back early on that, you know, helped to shape your kind of interest in, you know, call it people and, and people dynamics? Yeah, so I, I'm going to just borrow a line, my own line. It's the first line in the book, which is my let's see, the trailer park, my parents' alcoholism, and my PhD, that these were the three great teachers of collaboration for me. And so I grew up in North Platte, Nebraska, in a double wide, so we had the big fancy trailer and the trailer park. And, uh, you know, the rules, um, they were twofold. Number one, well, I guess three, if you count, all the kids need to leave the, you know, trailer park around nine o'clock. It was one of those you spill out and you're out playing with other kids. You're all day, every day. I can relate so hard. Right. And the other two roles were, you know, if you don't leave the chain link fence. So there was a, a clear property line for the trailer park. So, you know, you don't go over there, over to the creek to look for crawdads or anything like that. And the, the other rule was if somebody's seriously hurt, then you go get a parent. But other than that, the kids were on their own. So we had to figure out really early on how to play together without adults curating what it means to play and be like, well, you know, you know, Deb, you made a mistake. Go say you're sorry to Johnny. And let me tell you how to make an apology and like this very parental mediated way of existing. So the kids were out there figuring it out what to play, what the rules were going to be, what to do when little Davey misbehaved and how are we going to, you know, ostracize him or punish him but in a way that he's actually going to come back tomorrow and behave. So I think that I point to you as one of my original kind of instigators of why I love thinking about and experimenting with relationships. And then a second one is a little 
bit perverse, I'll admit, which is both of my parents struggled with addiction their entire lives. And as often happens when you have kids growing up amid addiction, is that the adults in the space are not necessarily able to adult real well. And so a lot of the the needs of the young people that are, you know, in those spaces, if they're met, they're often met by turning to adults outside of the family. So teachers, youth group leader, the the parents of friends. And I learned really early on that to get some of my very basic needs met, you know, whether it's, you know, maybe food one day or transportation to school another day relied on me understanding how to connect with the other adults in the world. And I, so I, you know, I look at this, I, I don't, I was never very intentional about it. Like it never occurred to me as a, a 10 year old, what was going on. But in retrospect, I, I totally see the pattern that I was paying attention to how to be, you know, how to approach adults, how to ask them for things, how to get my needs met through relationships. So those those are two of the early, you know, the early origin stories, I think, about how I got to this place where I really value and think deeply about relationships and can think through now what the levers are in the workplace to to throw to improve the quality of those relationships. That is, I can relate on so many, so many levels. We definitely lived in a double wide in Alliance, Nebraska. You and I were talking about this as well. And the same thing, I remember my mom, you know, on the weekends, literally, she would kick me and my brother out and lock the door. It would be like, do not come, do not come back until lunch. And that's, it's, it's interesting as you're saying it, I'm like, just the takeaways that you have. And again, yeah, how that, you know, how you have to learn to deal with those different interactions and what's right and what's wrong on your own a little bit. So I can relate. We also had a creek where there's crawdads and you would go. So everything in there I can resonate with. And I think it's a it's such a good lesson about, you know, there's different people grow up in different backgrounds. And I think we take away from it different things. And obviously this kind of, as you started to realize this, like you said, we don't necessarily realize it in the moment. It's, you know, later. I know we might talk a little bit about parenting as well, but, you know, how that can impact how we parent today versus growing up in those environments where, you know, you had to be a little bit more self-sufficient. To, to get what you needed. Yeah, there's something about being the ultimate free range kid. You know, it's like we got to experiment or there'd be an empty shed on one of the empty lots and it would turn into this restaurant one day and another day it would be the, you know, the secret hideout for the FBI or something like that. And it was fun. It was innovative. And you really valued, I don't know, I really valued just the open play mat nature of it. And then what, I mean, what, what led you to psychology? So you went to Nebraska Westland, you know, for your undergrad and then on came out to New York for your MA. What was it about psychology? You know, what was it for you that you said, you know what, this is where I'm drawn. And maybe it was less of this, oh, I know what I want to do my whole life. But what do you feel like really, you know, kind of drew you to that profession? So I can remember moments in particular classes where I was just absolutely fascinated by the ideas that were being discussed. But what I really remember is one professor where I was such a fangirl of hers and she was a psychology professor. Her name's Heather Bullock. And, you know, when she would would come in and we would be talking about the way that the behavior of any person is influenced by the the social context, and I was just eating it up and so while she was a psychology professor, I should go become a psychology professor. It made perfect sense to me. But I really point to that relationship as this inspiring career trajectory changing moment for me. And then I thought I was going to go off to Stony Brook to study the psychology of women's health behavior. And so that was the the program that I applied to. And I, I 
not quite hitchhike. I, I, I found a ride with a friend's friend from Nebraska out to New York. And, you know, he dropped me off. And then I, I said, okay, here we go. I'm in New York now. I had no idea what I was doing. But then in that very first semester, right, I'm like, oh, let's go have an adventure. And that very first semester, I took this psychology of close relationships course and absolutely fell in love with it. So I was the the dork in the class who read every single page of every single assignment, came in with my list of questions, my hand raised high. And I was like, I got it. What about this theory? And how does this relate? Just could not get enough of this content and decided that semester that this is what I really wanted to, to study. So it was just, I, I love the word serendipity. I love the role of serendipity in my life. And, you know, I could point to that class as this, it was the right place, right time to, to capture my heartstrings. And it, I was done from there. So, all right. So I have a question because I know whenever I made the move, so I went to college in the Midwest at Missouri State, the Harvard of the Ozarks, as uh, I like to refer to it as. Um, and then I, you know, I moved to Florida at first, but, but I worked in sports. And so I got a chance to interact with just like a ton of different people from the East Coast. What was the biggest learning from you of someone who had grown up in the Midwest and then going to Stony Brook where you have all these different like personality types. Like, wh- do you remember any takeaways from that of like, wow? Because mine was like, wow, these people just think differently. I'm like, I thought everyone thought the way we did. Yeah, my, my, well, two of them. The first one hit me the first day I got there. So this, you know, keep in mind was before Google Maps, before I think even MapQuest wasn't a thing yet. And I looked at my little map that I got from AAA, the, the you know, old school fold out accordion version. Like a Rand McNally or something? Or? Oh, yeah. And I was like, look, Stony Brook is, that's clearly New York City. And it wasn't. And so I thought I was going to be taking subways and learning how to ride a bus, which I had never done before. But really, I needed a freaking car and had no money to get a car. So that was some, you know, innovative problem solving there. So number one was just the geography was not New York City. And number two, I remember really early on going to, I think it was a McDonald's and ordering a hamburger and it came out without the hamburger and just like with a a bun. And I went up and apologized to the cashier. I'm sorry, but my hamburger doesn't have a hamburger on it. And she rolled her eyes and she's like, what the F? And she was mad and not mad at me. But of course, I interpreted it as she was mad at me. She was pissed off at the cook in the back who sent out a freaking hamburger without the hamburger on it. And I was near tears because I thought I had upset her. And just that really twisted Midwest way of thinking somehow everything is our fault. (laughs) And just and that comfort, at least in New York and a lot of the East Coast of of sharing negative emotion in a way that it, it's not about being mean or rude. It's just I'm giving other people information. So something that I've tried to embrace in my time since arriving in New York. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we lived there for six plus years and love it and love going back. And yeah, I had a very... It's so funny you brought the map. That was my first experience too. I... I didn't know. So I was I was finishing my finals and I had an interview at the Tampa Bay Rays. And I, you know, obviously I wanted to work in sports and so it was an awesome opportunity. And so I flew down in the morning, did the interview, flew back, finished my finals, and then I got the job. And I'm like, oh, Largo, Florida, that's like five minutes away from St. Pete. And I'm like, I had no concept of like, oh yeah, it's like the busiest road here and the busiest road here. And so I had like an hour commute each way for my first year. It's just like, oh, it's it's five miles. Like, it'll be fine. I mean, I grew up in a, a pretty large suburb of Kansas City, but still, yeah, you just don't get that sense of 
the map and like, oh yeah, there's no traffic pattern you could look at. Right. Five miles equals five minutes at 60 miles an hour. This is easy. Yeah, exactly. That was my thought too. So, all right. So at what point, so then you, you know, you go into teaching and you get into various different roles, moving up into like dean and faculty. What made you want to move into the, let's call it like business nonprofit life, right? So, I mean, you've built a very successful career, you know, being a thought leader in your domain. What made you want to branch out? Yeah, so I was a full professor, tenured at an amazing institution. This was, you know, this is what, as a professor, you you strive for to, to get to the tip top of the career and loved my work, loved my students, loved my campus. And then the 2016 election happened and the world melts down. And I get really concerned about polarization. And I should say in the United States, 2016 election, um, just for context for your international listeners. And I get really worried about polarization and this idea that somehow we suddenly were not able to talk to, not suddenly, but that it became very clear that we were not talking to each other, that our neighbors who believed something very differently than we did, that we didn't necessarily know they believed something different, that we were severing this relationship stuff that I so value because of differences in how people see the world. And I was coming at this problem as somebody who I love getting to think alongside people who see something different than I do about the world. In fact, I think that's the only way I get to actually understand and learn about the world because I am very limited in my my you know one vantage point by virtue of being a human. So I decided shortly after the 2016 election to walk away from tenure, to walk away from my full professorship, to move cross country from California to New York as a single mom at an eight-year-old in tow to help launch a national nonprofit focused on bringing more viewpoint diversity to higher ed to really center this idea of co-creating knowledge and exploration together and how do we create cl- you know classrooms that do that and research programs that do that and so it was a a deep-seated passion that got me off campus and into the nonprofit boardroom and so I was an executive director yeah, helped launch this organization called Heterodox Academy. Got you know, I like to say I put the organs in the organization. So it was, you know, brand new. It, it didn't have a database. It didn't have a 501c3 status or, you know, fundraising mechanisms or anything like that. So I, I launched that, fell in love with the the operations and the business side of things and thinking through strategy and theories of change and how do we really create the change in the world that we want to see. COVID hit. And for whatever reason, I was like, you know what I should do right now? I should go relaunch my consultancy that I was doing on the side back in my professor days. A pandemic is the perfect time to go do that. And it's been amazing and it's totally worked out. So I'm I'm very happy with that decision. But yeah, so it was the, the 2016 election that was the fire under my booty that got me to start moving in a different direction. That's great. I mean, like, look, I think, again, it's can be very easy, again, especially in your world, it's like you kind of have what a lot of people are looking for. And then being bold enough to follow your passion, and especially during a time, you know, I I was in New York during that time. And I remember that very well of just the clashing of opinions, you know, think it, it really was that time where massive division happened and for you to kind of take a leap to want to try to solve such a really big problem that's still, you know, an issue today, I think is is very admirable. And, and a, you know, obviously, it's kind of led you to where you are now. And, and what I want to do is understand, 
you know, collaboration, right? So your book, you know, Collaborate, right? Which is very a smart play on words. Talk about that. Like, how did you, again, you talked about this, you know, you went to Stony Brook, you love this course and you like know, these like small kind of close communications and the, all these different things in your life kind of aligned around this topic. Like, when did it crystallize for you? When was this idea of collaboration? You're like, oh, like I love, like this is my thing. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Harvey Mudd College is part of the the Claremont Colleges. So you have these five totally independent colleges that coexist on a single square mile of property. So you have Pitzer, Pomona, Harvey Mudd College, Claremont McKenna, and Scripps. And the deans of those five colleges got this grant to help figure out how to leverage all of the incredible resources that are sitting there in a way because, yeah, no one's going to force anybody to play with each other. Like that's like they're totally independent, but there's a lot of potential sitting there. They get this grant and then had had the, you know, somebody needed to run the grant. And my dean came to me and said, Deb, I don't know if you'd be interested in this, but kind of a cool opportunity. And within a half an hour of sitting there in his office, I was lit up about it. I thought, you know, yeah, because this is all about relationships. It's about how are you going to do together that which you could not possibly do alone in service to this amazing educational mission that all of these colleges share. Um, So that was really the moment that crystallized for me of, oh, man, I want to talk about I'm a relationships researcher by training. This is what I've been researching and teaching about for, I guess, over it must have been 15 years at that point. I want to see what I can do on the applied side. And so started to to work some magic there in collaboration with a whole bunch of other people. And and but what was it about that topic? You know, like, was there something that you remember about like collaboration? So again, I guess maybe it started this big, like how do we kind of share? How did you from that beginning over the course of your as you're kind of moving into the you know, call it private or nonprofit sector, you know, like, was there something that you remember what was in that project or something that happened later? You're like, I'm going to write a book on this or like, I really like this. The first real tug was what the hell is collaboration? So the problem with the word. Let's define that. Right. Well, okay. So yeah, let's start there because this whole word, we throw it around culturally to mean any kind of form of working together. You even said at the top of the show, you've got it as one of your core values. I'd be curious, have you guys defined it, for instance, where if we look at the word, it literally means, I mean, co-labor literally means together work, but together work can be a whole heck of a lot of things. It can be really basic. We exchange information. It's a tip for tat. It's a, you know, I give you access to this database. You promise not to spam the people and you give me, you know, $1,000 or something. Maybe that's all it is. But collaboration could also be, and I loved playing in the space when, you know, when I was doing that project, it could also be, we also, you know, we start to adjust our activities in a way to meet some sort of shared goal. Or maybe it's something even a step up where we, we start sharing resources. And those resources could be the the talent or, you know, in the case of the colleges, spaces in the classroom. Or it could be, you know, I've got this really expensive piece of machinery sitting over in this chemistry lab. Do you need that same piece of machinery? Or could you maybe save a gazillion dollars and come use our piece? So how do we start sharing resources? And then a step up from there, collaboration really means that we're doing all of those things and we're learning from each other to be better at our work. And so just complicating this word of what the hell do we mean by collaboration for me was a super interesting intellectual task. And then I started to say, what really goes into all of those different shapes of working together in terms of what capacities do you need as an individual to be able to do these things? What capacities do you need 
as an organization to be able to do that, say, across departments? So, you know, in your world, how do you, what what databases are sales and marketing using? Are they actually talking to each other? Wow, that seems like a really important foundational capacity to have in place before you expect the departments to work well together. And then it complicates even further when you say, what if we want this organization and that organization to do something? Or if we want the government sector to be partnering with private foundations or for-profit companies, what are their different needs? What's at stake for them? How do we understand what's motivating any one of those players to actually come and play well together in the first place? What's in it for them? And how do we create processes and tools and cultures that enable all of that to happen? So that's the stuff that totally lights me up. And it's just like, give me, let's, let's dig into this problem and start playing. Oh my gosh. And then and just like hearing you talk too, it's like, and that's why collaboration, you know, you talked about all those different variables that are involved is such a, you know, a, it's not a difficult topic, but I think like to, to get at the heart of what it means for, you know, your organization, you know, for, for those of you listening, you know, again, I think having a definition. So I will give it to you. I was pulling it up while you were talking. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how, what we learned. And what I'd love to do is get your take. I'll tell you what we learned about the value of collaboration. And collaboration is just like a definition unchecked. Because again, like your point, there's so many different definitions. You know, some people might think it's X or Y. What we found is that people thought they were like really living the value of collaboration because they were having meetings with each other. They were getting along. They would have a conversation um, with you know, their peer or their counterpart in a different department. And what we realized is that that's not collaboration. That is being friendly that is getting along with people. It is parts of collaboration. It's like, you know, caring about somebody else. But, you know, we talked about it and I'd love to hear your, your critique on this too, which is we operate as a team that supports challenges and roots for one another. We have separate roles and responsibilities. We acknowledge the employee role and remain aware of the goals and progress of each group so we can grow together. And there's some more that goes into it. But at the heart of it, what we did is we said, look, collaboration does not mean you're having a bunch of meetings. And what I think I see in today's modern work environment, and you can tell me what you think, Deb, is that we think we're collaborating because we're having meetings together. Oh, we've got meetings. And like I'm meeting with my marketing. And then it's like, well, actually, a better way to collaborate could have been an asynchronous communication and preparation up front. And then the meeting was around XYZ. And so I think what my learning around collaboration, and I want, I'd love your critique and feedback, is like my learning has been, it, it's helping people understand that it's it's working together toward a common result. It's not just always this like being together in a meeting or being friendly with people. And some many times that's actually bad collaboration because you're not actually pushing each other. And that's why we say challenge each other to get to the best outcome because you're too nervous about rocking the boat in something that's like not your department. And so anyway, there's a lot there. That is my journey with collaboration. But I'll turn it over to you as the expert to, to tell me kind of how you see it. So much to unpack there. So one of the things I want to make sure we touch on is this idea of collaboration as a value versus a skill set versus a process versus a culture. Um, so you, you, know, you mentioned that this is a value y'all hold. And then a lot of what you were saying in that value statement also speaks to your processes and as well as how we hold each other in positive regard. And we recognize we're, you know, we're all playing positions, different positions on the same teams. And you don't want two pitchers on the mound at the same time. You know, like instead you want to trust that the person who's there knows their stuff is going to be responsive to your needs, that we care about each other, that we lift each other up, 
So there's this, for me, the, the elements I'm pulling out are there's a relationship quality piece. There's a way that we think about how our work is um, structured and rewarded and the interdependencies that we've created within that work. That's really interesting. And then, you know, to your point about like, oh, we're having meetings, therefore we're collaborating what that speaks to are the the affectations of togetherness of these are the this is what it it looks like you can imagine um i'm just i'm imagining cartoon characters almost going into the room and like we're sitting next to each other surely we're you know we're talking we're meeting not realizing that there's there's content in there like in terms of the kind of energy the kind of thinking we're doing together the way that we're creating constructive tension to optimize decisions on behalf of that organization. So, you know, another thing that you mentioned toward the the end there that I was really grabbing onto is this idea that there's a specific shared goal. So we're not getting together and, you know, breaking bread just for the hell of it, but it's really driving toward something specific in service to the company's interest, which I think sometimes gets lost, you know, where I like, I mentioned the organs of the organization at Heterodox Academy, but I cannot believe how often I talk to these corporate leaders who are saying things like, I, I just wish we were more like one organization. It kind of feels like it's sales versus marketing or it's engineering versus production. Um, that's such a huge red flag to me because you are literally different organs in the organization. And if, if those organs are not working in harmony, and I don't mean, you know, I don't mean harmony is it like everybody's getting along, but they're not resonant or they're not orchestrated or, you know, the gears and the clock are not moving together. There's such a leaky p- pipeline of resources in terms of attention, in terms of timelines, money, you know, bottom lines are obviously impacted if things are not working well together. So this idea of like, oh, I wish we were all more one organization. If you're not, that's a big problem on the collaboration front. And I realized I don't even know if I answered your question because I got a little fired up there. No, I mean, I think this is what a lot of people are getting at. And so for those of you who are listening that are, because here's the thing, you don't have to be in in leadership to impact collaboration. I just want to call that out, you know, first and foremost, that you don't, this isn't a top down and like, it's my leader's job to, to force collaboration or to, for me to collaborate. It, it goes from, you know, the very, very bottom to the very top. My question for you, and, and this is, you know, when I talk to leaders and, you know, we think about this and especially in sales, right? Sales and marketing is very kind of metrics driven, right? Like that's, you know, this is the, the dollar amount or the pipeline or whatever it is. How do you, or like, what are the different mechanisms? I think if we get tactical and obviously read the book, right? We'll link to the book. So everyone got the book as well. How do you go about creating that where you've got people who have disaligned and not, 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 not fully not aligned incentives, but you've got people that may have different groups, but you need them to collaborate. Okay. This person, they care about getting the job done. This person cares about this. Like what are some of like the top mechanisms that you see in organizations utilize effectively to get people to see that. And I think that's when you know you hear leaders say that we're not functioning as one. I think the reality is they're struggling to the organization is struggling to understand what's in it for me a little bit or or what's in it for us as opposed to what's in it for me. So how do you how do you start that journey? I guess is maybe the the, the short question. So so many awesome ways that we can take this. So first we should not be collaborating because it's, quote, just the right thing to do or because it feels good because it's really freaking hard and it's hard to do well. We do it because the end result serves the interest of the participating parties. Ideally, those interests 
are they don't need to be exactly this identical interests that are being served. But if whatever we are co-constructing together, it needs to, we both have to have skin in the game. There has to be a reason we're trying to do it this way instead of in a different model. So there's that point. As a social psychologist, what I'm always interested in is behavior. And yeah, in a way, I don't care if you see the value of collaboration. I, can, I care that you're behaving collaboratively. And in terms of what creates behavior, behavior is a function of the individual as well as the situation that they're in or their environment. And so, you know, important here from the organizational structure side is thinking through, have we created an organization that is truly collaborative in culture? What does that mean? It means, number one, have you made collaboration possible? Is it even possible? Have you done that with your infrastructure? Basic things like, can I pull up a list of other people who exist in the company and identify the person I could reach out to for some question? It's amazing how often that information is actually really hidden. And yet it's like, we want you to all work together, but there's some there's some pipeline issue where I need to go up through five layers in my in my division before I can go find somebody five layers down in another division to pick up the phone and have a conversation with. So there's a possibility issue. Have I made collaboration easy? And we do this through user interfaces. So, you know, imagine when we, or not imagine, think back to when we all went remote a couple of years ago at the beginning of COVID. Not all organizations had, you know, these virtual or these platforms. Now everybody has Zoom or Meet or whatever, but now it's really easy. So the interfaces are such that it facilitates collaboration. Next, you want to make a collaboration normative. So are we holding up examples of, you know, wow, this this team did this cool thing together. In our newsletter, do we talk about, are we using we language in an appropriate way while also giving, you know, celebrating individual actors when appropriate? Are we incentivizing? So are we making collaboration rewarding? And it's amazing how often I hear companies say, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we have collaboration on our letterhead, or when you walk into our office space, collaboration is stenciled on a wall as one of the core values. But then you look at those metrics for the team, and it's all about individual behavior. It's all about individual production. And the people on the team are perhaps even competing with one another. It's like, what? I, so I'm sorry, walk me through how this reward system is in service to this core value. And it, it, so it's, it's there's a misalignment there. And then sometimes you have to actually make collaboration required. And it might be, you know, we would never ship a product until we've gut checked it with X, Y, and Z departments. Or if we're creating a new initiative, we want at least three different divisions represented in, in the brainstorming or something like that. So if you want this collaborative culture, you need to make it possible to collaborate, easy, normative, rewarding, and sometimes even required. Notice a whole bunch of those things are at the top, where if you want this to be a value, it does need to come from the top. And there are things that, like you said, individuals can and I think should be doing around how to have accountability conversations, meaning are you and I clear about how we expect to work together? Really basic things like where are we going to store our shared documents? When you send me an email or I send you an email, what is our expected response time? Do you, Should we be pinging each other back in two minutes, two hours, two days, two weeks? Because if you've got a team of four and everybody has a different assumption about how we should be working together, it's a landmine. Of course, you're going to be upsetting everybody and people are going to be upset. So there's some really basic 
functional conversations that we can have at the top of a collaboration to to help grease the skids, so to speak, to to get smoother smoother behavior together. I I think this is this is amazing because I, look, I think when a lot of people hear the word collaboration, and you get the CEOs, why why isn't it happening this way? I think we we with the word collaboration, we're like. Well, when it's working, it just happens, right? It's like collaboration. You know, it's like when people are like, we, you know, we don't use like a sales process. It's like, it just happens. It's like, no, that's not actually how it works. Like there is a process. There are constructs that need to be put in place, again, at the macro level and then at the unit level or the units coming together level. And I think just like anything, you know, from what I heard, your kind of explanations of some of these, these nuances it's the same, you know, issue anytime there is kind of this inter inter issues within organizations where it usually comes down to expectation management where hey, are we setting those clear expectations? Are we being clear on hey, we're coming together for this thing. This is what we're going to be working on. This is the end state and it's and it's not just this is my definition, it's collective definition. Everybody's on board. We've set together this plan um to do that. And and it's really interesting just hearing you talk how much of this comes down to individual accountability as well too for the collaboration where you know as you describe these constructs and things that go into great collaboration another thing that was standing out to me is that again we as individuals have a responsibility in collaborating and it's okay for us to again hold each other accountable you know i always go back to the old college project right where johnny's not pulling his weight and it's, it's for some reason i feel like we were better at it in college of being like dude stop it like, what are you doing? All right, well, I guess I got to pick up and do his work. And I think sometimes there can be elements where it's like, oh, that's that department. This is my department. It's not. And so we, you know, we kind of lose some of that accountability. And, and so my question for you is like, how can groups collaborate with productive, I wrote down constructive tension. I love that word, two words. How can, how can individuals be a part of that constructive tension to, to increase the quality of collaboration in their settings, in their group settings. Yeah, so I'm going to pause on that and just say this whole idea that somehow it's a mysterious black box, I think is coming from a good place because people know that they need it. They can see it when it happens and they know the pain and frustration that tensions mount and projects fizzle when it's not there. So I don't think you know people are intentionally being hand-weavy. I think they just don't have the lenses because none of us are taught how to do this. We weren't taught in in third grade. We weren't taught in high school or college. And now we're working on these incredibly complex problems to innovate, to save the world, to solve these really tricky world challenges. And there are no easy answers. If there were easy answers, somebody else would have already had them. And so like we've got got ill-defined problems. We've got messy people who don't know, who haven't received any sort of professional development how to do this. And so it's really no surprise that it ends up being kind of hand-weavy. But that's the kind of thing I love helping with. So read the book. (laughs) But then to this question of what can individuals do? You know, I'm with Leanne Davey on this where it's not so much that we hold each other accountable, but we have to hold ourselves accountable and that there need to be consequences when we fail to follow through, when we um, go off track, when we show up to a meeting unprepared or we're, you know, we haven't done the pre-work or we're given half-assed answers to things that we really should know. And it's clear to everybody in the room, you're faking it. And that team cannot move forward because you haven't done your job to name it, to be like, you know, I noticed you were on your phone during that meeting it made me feel like we're listening or you didn't value what my contribution was. 
can you share back with me what I was share or what I had said there? So I understand you have the information you need to go forward because we've got two more weeks to get this ship. Like, let's have that conversation. And it's hard to do. Instead, we just kind of see how sometimes sit on our hands or like have a side conversation or send a little side chat about how annoying this person is being. But I mean, we are literally getting paid to be in these workplaces doing this work. We have an obligation. I, I would say like a fiduciary responsibility to, to, let people know, like, you're not giving me what I need right now to be effective in my job. And we are clearly on the same team. What can we do about this? How can we do this differently? Here are the consequences of your behavior on my ability to do the work that I I need to get done. I love this because again, going back to this like mystical, it's we're all coming together. It's, you know, we're holding hands and we're, cl- it's like, no, like good collaboration is there's an element and you can correct me if I'm, and maybe I'm using the wrong word. You can tell me there's an element of selfishness to say, look, I, I am representing a, a, a set of KPIs for my company or whatever it is to represent in this collaboration. And that if I'm not looking out for that and, and letting this this thing kind of fall because I'm too scared or I don't want to rock the boat with somebody who's my peer or maybe like my peer's boss, I, I'm, a, I'm not doing a great job of collaborating. Instead, I'm, I'm like I said, it's that I'm showing up to meetings and a little bit of selfishness or, or maybe again, like a, a more positive word of, you know, making sure you're taking care of your own house first, I feel like is a key to this. You know, is that right? I mean, Deb, is that accurate. So it resonates. And I got to say the thing that's coming up for me here too, is some of the the problems around strategy development and strategic planning, where if it's not actually driven from the top, such that the work of our different departments are aligned, like if you're because it could be that we've somehow independently created what our goals and ambitions and whatnot are and haven't communicated them or they're not hand in glove the way they should be then you understandably one person can start pulling in one direction and another person can start pulling in another direction because they are serving their individual interest. But those individual interests were not themselves created at, at this level where you've got a nice vertical stack of you know, everybody's really truly driving toward the same goal. So that's one of the things to, you know, to look at. So it, like, how I, I kind of hate the word alignment, I should say, because I think it's overused. It's another one, like, have we really defined what that means? But are we aligned across our divisions, across our departments, across our teams? Is it clear how each kind of unit and piece of the puzzle stacks and feeds into the that superordinate goal? So that that came up for me as you were talking, just that clarity there is incredibly valuable. Yeah. And that, that again, you can't absolve yourself as leaders to say, well, let's go, you guys collaborate, nah, figure it out. Like, it's like, well, no, that's that's also not. There's elements of that that could be, you know, helpful. But just so you know, I just went and bought the book for all of my leadership team. So we will be reading. I am so excited for this. And like I said, we're going to link to it for all of you as well, too. And I think that this is, especially in our virtual world, where we get less of those social cues that we did face-to-face, the idea of collaboration will be the difference between teams that accomplish things at the highest of levels and teams that struggle to get there or maybe don't achieve their full potential. So, Deb, I really appreciate you joining me on the show. And I think my listeners are going to have a ton of takeaways. Go out, buy the book. Like I said, I just bought it for myself and entire leadership team. I'm very excited for it. So thank you again for sharing all your wisdom. Amazing. This has been a great conversation. We could talk Midwest stuff for hours, I suspect. So thank you very much. (laughs) It's interesting now. Like, yeah, it's like, it's like, wow, how much of that did shape me? I don't know, like I'm having like my own revelation. It's like we're talking here. So, but no, I just, it's such a timely topic and such something again, 
people need to go deep on this. This is this is this is the future of how organizations are working together, and especially in remote environments where we can't see each other. We don't. We can't see what's happening with collaboration and these constructs that you're talking about about constructed collaboration from the top-down expectation and, and kind of setting the ground rules to as these collaboration units form more formally or even less formally and setting expectations. I just think literally if you acted on one of these things, you are, you are going to be a better collaborator for your organization. And as a leader, your organization is going to collaborate more effectively. So Dr. Mashek. Yeah, can I just end by saying, and all of these factors are mutually limiting and mutually amplifying. So I totally agree with you. If you start pulling on one of them or start making a change in one place, it will propagate. You'll have this virtuous cycle. You're going to see improvement. And this stuff is hard and it is totally worthy of the hardness because we have these hard problems to solve because the world needs these best ideas and we, we they're not going to bubble up on accident. Well, rarely, I should say. So go forth and collaborate. Go forth and collaborate. What a perfect way to wrap up. So thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of the Jake Dunlap Show and we will see you next week. Thank you everyone again for listening to another episode. If you are listening all the way to the end, I hope you have left a review. I hope that you make sure that you're following or subscribing on your favorite podcast listening apparatus. We'll be back next Thursday. And again, make sure to check out the Monday episodes as well too. A lot of people are really enjoying these kind of mini episode Mondays. So make sure to tune in, subscribe, and leave a review.